All right, we as a church exist uh, to proclaim the truth of God's word so that we will live for the glory of God. Um, I want to give you a couple quotes about this book. In Jeremiah 23, God says this. He says, is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In the garden on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Ephesians 6, Paul urges the church to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Uh, It would be impossible, I believe, for us to overestimate the value and importance of the word of God in our lives. I could go on quoting scriptures that I was taught to memorize as a young person about the incredible value and benefit of the word of God as it is studied and applied to our daily lives. We as a church have a basic conviction, and that conviction is this, that at 2 Timothy 3 states that all Scripture is God-breathed. And therefore, as a result of that being God-breathed, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I want what that says to be true in my life. It's not always true in my life, but it is, if you dig down deep enough in my heart and get to the foundation of Christ, that's what I want more than I want anything else in my life. Our conviction as a church is this. Since the word of God is God-breathed, that it is the very breath of God, and we make a statement like this, you may say to your child, don't breathe another word, meaning I don't want to hear another thing from you. Okay, the the word of God says the Bible is God-breathed. It is the very thoughts and words of God. So that when I read the Bible or when the Bible is proclaimed in a setting like this, we have the benefit and privilege of hearing the heart of God. That to me is an amazing truth. So when the Bible speaks, God is speaking. Our God-given call then as the preaching team or teaching team at the chapel of Warren Valley is to 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, preach the word Instant, in season, and out of season, which is to say when it is acceptable to people and without consequence, and when it is unacceptable and with consequence, we as teachers of God's word have the responsibility to preach the word of God. And we need to preach that word in a way that causes people to ask themselves a question. It's the disciples' question. Uh, Lucas, I blame you for what's happening to my voice right now, okay? I catch myself on Sundays when I'm preaching saying, don't sing so much or so softly. The disciples question, every time you sit and listen to biblical truth should be this. What in my life needs to change in light of what I am hearing from God today? Now, everything that I say that is not directly connected to God's word, I would encourage you to toss it aside. 
But every word that is God's word, that is proclaimed, that is taught, that is explained and applied, I need to say to myself, what in my life needs to change so that I can become a God-glorifying, devoted follower of Jesus? That's the mindset I should listen to the word of God with. It's the mindset I should read the word of God with. What is God saying and how should it change my life? So all of our preaching is aimed towards an end and that is a question, what must I do? Where you're sitting this morning to adjust your life according to the truth of God's word that you have heard and that the Spirit of God has pointed out. I've often said to people, one of the good ways that you can test a church to see if it's the kind of church that you should participate in is see if people carry the word of God into their churches. Now, that has become more difficult in the Apple generation, okay, because People are carrying their phone, and you're not quite sure if they're texting during the service, playing a game, or reading the Word of God, okay? But you understand what I'm saying. The question is, do people come with an expectation that in this place, the Word of God is supreme, and the opinions of leaders and teachers are secondary at very best? Uh, I like to think of it this way. When I go to a restaurant, I expect a menu that has food on it. Okay, and if I go to a restaurant that doesn't have a menu that offers food, I'm not going back. And the same should be true when you go to the house of God. You should have an expectation. You as members of a church should have a demand. We want to hear the word of God. So that when I hear it, I am hearing from God. Filtering out all humanity and through the instrument. But we want to hear from God. How do we fulfill this call? As a church... And as a leadership team, we have a commitment to what we call text-based preaching. Okay, we don't do a lot of topical preaching in our church. Our goal is to work you through a text of Scripture. We call it tethered teaching. Okay, so that whatever is being said, you should be able to take what is being said and tie it to a portion of Scripture that as a result of the exposition and explanation of it, you can go away saying, I understand what God is saying. How do I now put that into practice in my life? That should be the perennial heart of a child of God's. God, take your word and reshape, reclaim, remake my life for your glory. The text that we're going to look at this morning is Psalm 119, and I, I'll just make a couple of quick observations. The text is, text is 176 verses long, so please be patient, okay? No, I'm not going to preach through all of it, okay? It's a fascinating, exalted celebration of God's truth, okay? It is, okay, so the text is an exalted celebration of God's word. 172 verses, you only find seven verses that don't in some way reference the word of God. Okay, so you have 160, doing math on my feet, 66 verses that directly reference God's word using one of 10 synonyms. So you're going to find the law of God, the principles of God, the statutes of God, the decrees of God, the commands of God, on and on it will go. You'll find 10 synonyms, and out of the 172, 166 will directly reference God's word. So what I would say is this, David has an exalted, very very, very high view of the word of God as he comes to it. And he's going to spend 172 verses meditating on and thinking on the power of the book that lies in our laps or lies on the shelf in our homes. I want to encourage you this morning to embrace the promise that this psalm begins with. 
Okay, and the promise of this psalm, I thought back to when I preached, I think, on Psalm 1, the pursuit of happiness. You know, we often try to differentiate between happiness and joy, and we go on and on and on and on. And I want to tell you that the Bible doesn't tend to do that kind of disjointed thinking. It tends to think in terms of happiness and joy and blessedness as as a category of life experience for those who seek to honor, obey, and follow God. It God wants you to pursue happiness. He wants you to go for it. He wants you to be devoted to it. And this text, I think I could summarize the kind of the theme of this text by saying God wants you to be happy. Now, I think that's an incredibly positive, powerful message. God wants Christians to experience a deep and abundant joy. And so this psalm lengthy psalm starts out with a very simple promise. I want you to read verse 1 and 2 with me. It says, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Now, the word blessed is very similar to the word that's used in Matthew 5. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, he'll he'll use that word blessed, I believe, 10 times in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, the word here is is characterized in the original language in the plural form. So it's, oh, the blessednesses of or the happinesses of people who live in a certain way, in a certain orientation towards the revealed will of God. And and I think as you go through this, you're going to see that there is a strong promise of happiness that is directed towards a specific group of people. Okay, so the observation of happinesses or blessednesses are for those whose ways are blameless. And that is to say, and and in in the Psalms, you're going to find that there is a parallelism. The psalmist is going to say something two times in a different way, but he's saying the same thing. Okay, so notice how verse 1 puts it. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless. That is to say, those who walk according to the law of the Lord. Okay, and the idea of walking in this text refers to lifestyle, the manner of living, the way of someone's life, the, 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 the overwhelming tendency or direction of the life. That's the idea that emerges here. And I, I think from verse 1 and verse 2, verse 2 says, blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. So there is this idea in the text of law keeping, of recognizing God's truth and adjusting one's life to it. That is the habit or the general direction of this individual's life. And the psalmist says the person who does that, who lives out the law of the Lord wholeheartedly and who has a stated disposition to obey the word of God without compromise, that individual has a blessed, happy life. Now, I want to I work through this text then, trying to grasp this idea of obedience, of committed Christ following. Verses 1 and 2, they live out the law of God, and there's this intensive nature to the verbs that are used. It is a persistent desire. It is the consistent passion of happy people that they want to know the will of God and put it into practice. Verses 3 and 4, they do no wrong... And hopefully you throw up a red flag there, okay? Because now you're thinking to yourself, okay, who would that be? Okay, because I know it's not me. 
They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts, Lord, that are to be fully obeyed. Okay, I want you to catch the weight of that. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts. These are directions, and they are to be fully obeyed. The idea is obedience without compromise. Now, what is the text describing? Okay, at one level, you might come away saying this text seems to be describing a perfect person. But we know that the word of God is very clear. There are no perfect people. But there are people that you know in your life and in your Christian experience that have a decided predisposition, a certain bent, a predictability about their life when it comes to moral decisions and clarity. Okay, and and I think this text is using poetic statements that sometimes seem very far-reaching or categoric, but they're poetic pictures. The natural bent of the happy person, the blessed person, the bent or direction of their life is always towards a pattern of life that leans towards, that bends towards obeying and following God. Okay, that person will experience not the heart of a rebellious person who's always resisting. Okay, and I, I always say this to the teenagers in our church. There is no such thing as a happy rebel. Okay, this person does not rebel against what God is revealing. They yield to it. Not because they always like it. Because they know in their heart, this is the right thing to do. And folks, sometimes the right thing to do is not the easy or fun thing to do, correct? So there are hard decisions that we make, choices that you face in your workplace, in your family life, in raising your children. You are often tempted to take the easy route. The psalmist is devoted so strongly, and so strongly is the blessed person devoted to the word of God that you can say they do no wrong. There is a, such a pattern of life, such a reputation that the thought of sinfulness in their life would be unbelievable and virtually unacceptable. Not that it's not there, but that the commitment and orientation of the life is so strong that it would make it hard to believe. When the psalmist says, I will obey your decrees and precepts, and he says this in verse 5 and following, listen to what he says. He says, God, oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees, which seems a little bit opposite of what I obey all your ways in the previous verse, right? So I think there's an indication in the psalmist's proclamation of a need for the help of God in getting to the place that he's talking about. Does that make sense? God, I need your help to walk in obedience because sometimes I'd rather do the fun thing or the easy thing or the likable thing. Sometimes speaking truth is costly. So the psalmist says, oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. So there is no presumption of arriving at a place where I no longer need the help of God because I am so well advanced. Thank you. It's not the idea. There's a great humility here. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. And the idea is, the more I orient myself towards living out God's truth, the less shame I have in the experience of my life. The less in my life needs to be kept out of sight and hidden. My life can be open and transparent because there is no fear of guilt. It's kind of like when you're driving down the road, Route 78, and you're going about 70 miles, 70, 75 miles an hour, and you see a police officer, and you're like, I'm good. 
But most of us get that twinge, right? You see the cop, you tap the brakes, you look at him and say, I was fine. Or at least I am now. <laughs> okay. And there's that, when you see a police officer doing his job and you're abiding by the laws, guess what? There is nothing in your conscience that strikes out. I'm good. Okay, it's not necessarily an arrogance. It's just, a, okay, that's, that's where I belong. The psalmist, that's what the psalmist is saying. When I walk in your truth, I have that sense of abiding peace in my life. I, I want to illustrate this idea of blamelessness, this, this theme of, of a life strongly oriented towards following and doing the word of God. I, the best illustration I give you is this. In a marriage ceremony, individuals make commitments that are virtually beyond belief. Okay? I've often said to couples, at the end of your vows, you should say, so help me, God. Okay? Why? Because the promises that are made are much more exhaustive than one, one is able to really comprehend. Okay? And the, and the troubles of life bang against that marriage. And all of a sudden, what I promise becomes incredibly difficult but necessary. And I can tell, my wife could testify very quickly, I'm sure much to your surprise, that I'm not a perfect mate. Okay? She can inform you in many ways. But what I can say is I have strived to maintain the essence and core in the basic direction of my life towards loving and fulfilling my commitments to that woman. Okay, and, and the Word of God does this for biblical leadership qualifications as well. It does not say that the person who is involved in leadership as an elder, for instance, in the context of the church, must be a perfect person. No, what it says is they must have the reputation of being blameless. And I think that's the idea here. They are deeply committed and devoted to law-keeping before God, but never as the means to their salvation. And they always cry out to, to God saying, God, oh, that my ways were steadfast. Oh, that you would defeat the sinful patterns and tendencies in my life and bring me to a, a, a place of higher calling, of greater growth, of more God-glorifying choices. That's the idea that the psalmist cries out for here. And the law here is not seen as something that is restrictive. Instead, in verse 7, here's the way the psalmist said it, says it. He says, I will praise you with an upright heart. So he thinks about the law of God and the directions of God. He says, God, you're good. Your laws are restrictive. They're a little tight sometimes, but you're good. And, 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 and then he says, he says, as I learn your righteous laws. Now, the word righteous today is used sometimes to describe vehicles. Okay, sometimes it's used to describe cell phones. Sometimes it's used to uh, refer to attire. We say something that is unbelievably excellent is righteous. Okay, you understand that. And I think the psalmist, in a way, is, is looking at the word of God and saying it's righteous. It is, it is an exalted path to live on. It is the better way to live. In watching the Olympics, I, I've, I've been stunned by one story of a particular athlete. Uh, her name is... is if I get this right, Efimova. She is the, I think I'm saying, forgive me if I'm saying it wrong, and don't correct me after the service, okay? Efimova is her name. She's a 100-meter breaststroke specialist. In the last three years, was barred from participation because of doping. And there were people on the American team and on other teams that were highly irritated that someone who had been convicted of doping 
was being allowed to participate just a few days before the event in the Olympics. The fear was this, that the person who had doped would win the gold medal fallaciously. And so the American ended up being outspoken. I'm not, I'm not saying that I would recommend her approach, okay? But she was right. A person who is participating outside the boundaries should not have the privilege of participating in victory. That simple. So that girl in the 100-meter breaststroke was defeated by the American, got the silver medal, but it wasn't righteous. And news reporters caught up, caught up with the simple fact that she was in tears over regrets because what she had attained had lost its glimmer, its glory. And folks, here's what I want you to know. When you live according to the word of God, the end result of that, his law is righteous. It is, when there is success, or if I use the word victory in a, in, a, in a looser sort of way in your Christian experience over sin, and you are beginning to find that you are abiding more consistently by the truth of God's word, it is righteous. It brings joy, and I think that's what the psalmist is saying. I obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. God, I am committed that's the idea. So this promise of happiness is for those who have a disposition or an orientation towards a lifestyle that is honoring the directions of God as they work their way through the difficulties of life in a fallen world. Luther said this. He said, one of the great tragedies of life is that men seldom bridge the gulf between practice and profession between doing and saying. How often he indicted us, our lives are characterized by a high blood pressure of creeds with an anemia of deeds. Jesus put it this way. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. James would later repeat the words of Christ by saying something like this. Be doers of the word and not hearers only who deceive themselves. Folks, until we as the church of Christ experience a transfer of truth from the category of mentality to heart living, we will be weak and anemic. But when the church of Christ begins to respond to the promptings of the Spirit of God, leading us towards truth and pointing in the direction of righteousness, we will begin to experience something glorious. And what God wants in Washington, New Jersey, is a church that is committed and devoted to, to biblical living. All right, I say to people, so what kind of church are you? I say, well, can I put it this way? We're not a perfect church. But our desire is to be a biblical church. And when the Bible is speaking certain ways about certain truths, we're willing to make adjustments. And we have a history of doing that. Not because God's truth has changed but because our understanding and grasp and implementation of it has come clear. So we make subtle shifts along the way so that we can be more oriented towards what God is saying because we desire to be a biblical church. And we as Christians, when we go out of this place from this salt shaker spread into the world around us, should say, God, my desire is that I would be a law keeper. I would follow your truth. That would be the reputation that I walk into my workplace with, that I experience in the context of my family life where I am really known. That there's a person who loves the law of God and is trying their best to live it. Imperfectly, yes. Humbly, yes. But for the glory of God, yes. 
And when you make that deep of a commitment, folks, here, here's what you'll find. You will find that there is sacrifice along the way, but you will find that there is joy. And it's one of the strange things that we wrestle with, making the hard choice, the hard sacrifice, the difficult change, the needed confession, so that I can experience the joy of God's forgiveness. You see, I think wrapped into this text when the psalmist says, don't forsake me utterly, that I believe is an appeal to the grace of God of a sinner who is striving, who is devoted to God-honoring living and to biblical decision-making. The pursuit that the psalmist embarks on is a pursuit of happiness. That happiness is for those that are deeply devoted to the word of God. Now, verses 9 through 16 then lead me into a I'm going to call this a plea for help, okay? Because the moment you say, okay, I'm devoted, you're going to face some hard decisions. You're going to find that the implementation of your conviction that when the word of God speaks, God is speaking. When God speaks, I'm obeying. When you get that calculus in place, you will find that your life does not get easier. I think you'll find that you have greater joy. But I don't think you'll find that life is easier. So verse 9 raises a question, okay? And it, it, I, uh, verse 9 to me is a Q&A, okay? There's a question, there's an answer. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? Answer, by living according to your word. And what is it? It's a rhetorical question. The psalmist knows the answer to the question that he's asking. But there is in the question attention that I think most God-fearing people have. Most parents have this today. Most grandparents have this today. I could say that differently now, okay? Most grandparents have that concern for the next generation. I'm not concerned about prosperity for the next generation. I'm not concerned about freedom, primarily. I'm concerned about righteousness. And the church needs to get itself oriented properly. The fundamental most profound concern that we have is the proclamation and living of truth. The other things matter. I'm not saying they don't matter. You can have freedom and be a total mess. In an age that is turning so profoundly from simple, clear truth. When people can't even, and I, please forgive me for saying this, but I, I live in an age when people can't figure out what bathroom to use. And I mean that. I mean, simple, fundamental, basic truth from the Word of God. And I think that kind of, and there's a broader uh, disintegration morally in our culture that leads to the last thing, okay? And I, please understand how I'm using the illustration. It's like once you start to throw off moral boundaries that are biblically based, anything becomes possible. And I think that's the sad end of the road when truth has been downgraded, ridiculed, and ignored. It is interesting that these patterns... And these struggles flourish in the most advanced sophisticated countries in the world. These are not the troubles of third world countries. These are the troubles of first world countries where you and I live. 
And I, the verse that came to my mind as I was typing this was, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Which is to say what? There is no overarching authority in my life, so I can do as I please. I can declare truth what I want it to be. I can make my own decisions. But that is a world of absurdity and anarchy. The psalmist says, how can a young person keep their way clean? He says, by a simple commitment. Keep it according to God's word. Folks, there is pain in the ignoring of instructions. Okay, I'm a, I'm a living example of that. Okay, my, my nemesis in life is ceiling fans. Okay, they're my nemesis because you really need to follow the instructions step by step to get to the end that you desire. I never do that. Okay, it has cost me enormous amounts of time. I have a ceiling fan hanging in my basement that's been there for two and a half years that does not work because the pain of going back and doing that, having done it correctly in my mind the first time, is too strong. I can't go. I, if someone wants to come over and help me fix my fan, I, w- I would give you a big embrace. I'll pay you. There is, when you live a God-ignoring, truth-ignoring life, Folks, I want to tell you something. You cannot do it without consequence. Okay, what you sow, you will reap. And we live in a country, and sometimes it's present in our church and in our lives, where the word of God is not given the honor that it is due. And it is destructive to the most fundamental, glorious relationships. It's destructive to dating relationships where boundaries are crossed and things are given up that can't be gotten back. It's true in terms of what people observe on the Internet. Where lines are crossed. It's true in our homes, raising our children, where there's a lack of courage about biblical truth and putting it into practice with your kids and saying to your children, here I stand. Like it or leave it. This is who I am. As your mom, as your dad. We need to get back to where the psalmist is here. There is hope for the next generation. You know what it is? Keeping God's when you follow those simple Ten Commandments and you begin to see how they flesh out into broader areas of your life, you will find that your life is fundamentally changed and deeply happy. Don't sacrifice that for the pleasures of sin that are for but a moment. The psalmist now goes on to explain the commitments as to how he will keep it according to God's word. He says, I seek you with my whole heart. Do not let me stray from your commandments. This again, an intensive word. God, don't let me stray, which is to say, in this commitment to keep my life according to your word, I need your help. I need your direction. And I ask for it. I submit to it. Verses 11 through 14. I love this. And this is a verse that all of you know. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. To hide is not to hoard. Okay, I had a grandfather who was a hoarder. Okay? He had a basement full of boxes and paper bags because they could all be used one day. Okay? Those things that he kept and treasured were of no value. They're in a garbage dump in Spring City, Royalsport, Pennsylvania. Made no difference. Okay? What the psalmist here is talking about is not, I have an accumulated knowledge of God's word. No, what he is saying is, I have written on my heart an instruction manual from God for how to have a happy life. I treasure your word so that it may keep me from sin, so that my choices are guided by and according to it. 
Verse 12, I love this. Praise to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. I want to live your way, and I need to know it to live it, so open my eyes. That's what, what, what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians, 2, or 1 Corinthians 14, he's saying, or 1 Corinthians 2. He's saying that the Spirit of God illuminates the truth of God so that I want to do it, so that I delight in it. Paul says that's true because you opened my eyes so I could see it. So what do you need to do? You need to go to God and say, God, there are things that Pastor Tim is saying this morning that I don't buy. But if your spirit would illuminate that truth for me and make it clear to me, I'm all yours. Folks, that's it. That's what the psalmist is. I treasure your word. Praise be to you. Verse 11, with my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I, the idea is I talk to myself. I mutter these things. They're my meditation. Verse 14, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Folks, one of the great themes of every political campaign is, are you better off than you were four years ago? And that's supposed to be like a hook that gets set and then gotcha. Because if you're not, I can change your life. And I can determine your vote. You know what David says? Or the psalmist says, I don't care about riches. I like where your word is taking me more than anything else. And in it, I find that I delight. I meditate on your precepts. I consider your ways. I delight in your creeds. I will not neglect your word. That is the fundamental commitment of the psalmist. Folks, as you know the word of God and make a commitment to put it into practice, it will bring confidence in your life. That I'm on, I am on the path that God wants me on. And here's the other thing it will do. It will eliminate confusion. You know, you know what I hate and I despise? I hate when I am hung up in a situation where I don't know what decision to make. I just, I hate being in a place where I, I just like, I just, I'd rather make a bad decision than no decision in that situation. And, and, and this, I, what Psalmist is saying, God, I, I want to follow your way so completely that it is, it, it is fundamentally and abundantly clear when I face circumstances in my life, moral dilemmas in my life, that they're no longer dilemmas because the light of your truth shines and shows me which way to go. That's the way an instruction manual works. Not this, this first. It's corrective. It's instructive. And the psalmist, I believe in this case, is desperate to hear from God. He wants to know the word of God. You know what I live in? I live in a very noisy culture. In most houses, there's something on the wall that talks to you all day long. In your car, there's something coming from the dash that talks to you all day long. And folks, I want to challenge you, and I have to challenge myself. I, I, I challenge myself on this. God, I want to be more saturated with your truth so that that, that instruction manual is full and so that when I face decisions, there is not just the truth, but there is an orientation emerging from meditating. So that when the decision comes up, the instinctive response is biblical. Does that make sense? Meditating on, saturated in, so that I don't, have to, I don't know what to do. Sometimes people call me with decisions they're looking at making, and they're like, you're really confused? Like, are you serious? You don't know what to do in this situation? Why? Because sometimes there is a dearth of the knowledge, clear knowledge of God's truth. Psalm is saying, God, bring it, and then adjust my life according to that truth. James, I, th I think of you in counseling, okay? I think of how frustrating it is when people won't take the simple truth and put it into practice, because we could put him out of a job. And I mean that sincerely, and I think that would be the greatest quitting that you ever did. 
But we all need help, folks. We all need help. We all struggle. And the best thing you can do when you struggle is go to God and say, God, teach me your word and send me to someone that knows your word who can counsel me and send me into a church where I'll hear your word so that my life is correct and reoriented because I have the tendency to lose the, lose the instruction manual, to lose the map. And I need your help. Psalmist is desperate to hear from God. I, I say to every college student in our church that is bound for college, I hope that you have a commitment to get in a biblical church where you will hear the word of God because you so desperately need it. You need that word written on your heart. I told you this story before about my dad. When my dad was saved, I was four years old. That was a long time ago. Never reflected on that. It's 51 years ago. My dad ran a lawnmower shop, worked very hard, had a nervous breakdown from hard work on the floor. Gospel-loving people came to the door of our house, shared the gospel with my mom. Two weeks later, my parents went to church, trusted Christ. It wasn't long after that that my dad realized that he had an idol in his life. It was a B-O-A-T. That's a boat. Okay. And my dad knew that the allure of that in his life at that time was so strong that he feared that it would take he and his family apart from the place where they would hear the word of God. And he sold it. I think it was probably 30 years later that my dad bought another boat because it was, it was something he loved to do. But he had the insight to know that something that would keep me from hearing the word of God was fundamentally dangerous, though an inert thing unable to change anything, but fundamentally dangerous. And he made a commitment. I would caution you as parents, in, a, in an age where good parenting is determined by how many things you involve your children in at the expense of family life, at the expense of family meals, at the expense of sanity in your home, at the expense of the place where you hear the word of God. I would cautiously, not to make you guilty, but to cause you to think about the commitments that changed my life. My parents made a commitment that we would be in the house of God. That was a priority, and that would mean certain sacrifices and definite gains. So I challenge you as you plan your life, as you plot it, think, is the thing that I am moving towards and highly valuing really that valuable? Will it really make that big of a difference in my child's life as compared to the Word of God? That's a question you have to ask. And I just pastorally, I encourage you, as someone who has done raising their children, I encourage you to think very deeply about what you're valuing because it communicates values to the next generation. So I say to college kids, when you go to college, Find a church that preaches the Bible. As families, be devoted to being in the house of God where you hear the word of God. As individuals, be in the word of God on a regular basis. Let it be shaping your life. And, and I'll just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize this last thought. It's, it's the last few verses. So there's the promise of happiness. There's the pursuit with certain commitments. But there's also a warning. 
Okay, the more you commit to following God's truth, the more you should expect to be opposed when you believe that biblical values should be honored in every area of your life. You will experience opposition. Jesus says to the disciples, uh, particularly to Peter, he said, Peter, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. He's coming after you. But I have prayed for you that you would not fail. And folks, we need a generation of people who want happiness so much that they'll make commitments to get there and that when opposition flies in their face, when people question the depths of their commitment and say, really? That you say, really? I believe that one of the greatest things that lacks in the church today is courage to live biblical truth. I don't want to be disliked. And so you will find Christian people all over today who are falling down on key moral issues because they don't want to lose their popularity. May God help us to want the favor of our creator above the applause of weak people. May God help us. Teach your kids to stand with courage and conviction. The psalmist says, Be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes, that I may see wonderful things from your law. I am a stranger on earth. That is to say, I don't quite fit in because I have certain commitments. True. Don't hide your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. There is a burning desire to know and live and do your truth. You rebuke the arrogant who are a curse, those who stray from your commands. Folks, can I, I want to say this. The psalmist commitment to the word of God is a declaration of loyalty to God. And every time I don't put into practice biblical truth that I know, it is an assault on my relationship with God and his place in my life. Okay? When I obey it, it's loyalty. When I disregard it, it is rebellion. And that path never leads to happiness. That's the, that's the warning of this psalm. Remove from me their scorn and contempt. I want you to notice the psalmist does not declare war against them. He puts it into God's hand and goes on his way. And that should be the attitude of the Christian life. You know what? I'm going to follow God and leave the results with him. If you don't like me, I'm sorry. It hurts. But I love God. That kind of conviction, that's what the church of Christ needs today. Remove from me their scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. The rulers sit and slander me. Your servant will meditate on your decrees. So when the fire of suffering is raining down, I will bring back to mind. I will meditate on your promises. Psalm 119, 165. I love this verse. Great peace have they who love your law. Nothing shall offend them. Wow. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. They are my advisors. They're my guide. At the end of the day, that is what I will follow. This morning I asked you the question, are you happy? Is there a, is there, can you say I have, and I know it's probably not even a word, can, do I have blessednesses in my life? Do I have happinesses in my life? Is there a, an abundant joy that comes from having God and his word 
guiding my life, a degree of confidence that the Spirit of God is prompting my heart to follow the Word of God and engaging me in a love relationship with God where there is a deep, unbreakable loyalty so that the reputation of my life is God follower. God's Word obeyer. Are you happy? As a church, let's eliminate the gap between belief and practice. Ask the disciples' question every Sunday. What must I do in light of what I have heard to be a follower of Christ? And today, my challenge to you is this. Just put this in as, as, a, as a call to you in light of communion. We're going to come to receive the elements by which we are saved. Uh, the elements declare a message. That message is the message that saves us. Not the elements themselves, but the work that they, that they proclaim. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The shed blood of Christ for our sin. As we come to the Lord's table, as believers, the Word of God says this. Let each one examine himself. And then let them eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So today, perhaps there is in your life an area, an area of regret, an area of guilt, an area of shame. That God recently has been making clear to you. And I ask you this morning, what struggle or what bondage does God aim to give you over in your life today through the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God? What does He want to free you from? What part of God's word have you known and refused to obey that today you would say, God, I'm done. The rebel is unhappy. I want to be happy in a way that shows delight and glory in you. So point it out and change my life. What you need, what I need in in this circumstance, in any circumstance like that, is a change of attitude via repentance. In the communion, we proclaim that through the blood of Jesus Christ... We can be forgiven. As a kid, we sang a song, and it was called, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. No turning back. Folks, blessedness is right there. It's that close. And it's a gift that God desires to give to his children every day. Father, help us as your church to love truth. Help us as a pastoral team to preach truth in season, out of season, when it is acceptable and when it is unacceptable when it is popular and when it is unpopular. And help us, every one of us in this room, as your children that makes up the chapel at Warren Valley, to be people that are devoted to truth-keeping and God-glorifying, Christ-following. May we be people that say, God, show me, bid me to come, and I will follow. God, shatter the rebellion that creeps up in my heart. Sever the cords that tie me to it and free me by your word for your glory so that I can experience blessednesses and happinesses in my life for your glory. Do that, God, today, I pray, for your church, young and old. Do it, we pray. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, amen.